Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Geezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and SoundCloud. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. We have another great show for you. We'll remember the life of Major League Baseball great and New York Mets legend Tom Seaver, who died last week at the age of 75. My Gazette colleagues Mark Mahoney and Jim Schultz and former Gazette executive sports editor Mark McGuire will offer their thoughts on Seaver. We'll also preview the start of the NFL season. I'll have sound with Jim Nance and Tony Romo of CBS Sports and ESPN's new Monday Night Football team of Steve Levy, Brian Greasy, and Lewis Riddick. First, though, it's a double shot of horse racing. There won't be a Triple Crown winner this year, and the most unusual Saratoga season wrapped up on Monday. To talk about that is Gazette sports writer Mike McAdam. Mike, welcome to the Party Shots Podcast Studio for the second straight week. <laughs> the studio. No song reference this week either, although the one from last week, I thought the law had some applications. And uh, as I was just saying a little while ago, um, I don't know if the racing gods were trolling or what, but um, I drive up to the track on Sunday the day after uh, Tis the Law got beat by Authentic in the Kentucky Derby. Uh, WEQX from Manchester, Vermont played I Fought the Law on the radio a little before 11 o'clock Sunday morning. I was like, is somebody like play, playing with me here or something? That's kind of weird. But um, So, yeah, a, a strange season wrapped up with no fans, um, which has been you know pretty much the standard at every track. Um uh, you know, around the country since they started uh, opening up again back in May or whatever it was. Um, it was weird for us uh, from a professional standpoint because every day was basically the same. You came in, there was nobody there. It didn't matter if it was a huge day like Travers Day or just some lousy middle-of-the-week card. Um, it was just every the context and the atmosphere were the same every time. And uh, so we're kind of glad it's over. Um, we did get to see some cool stuff, but... Very few of us did. <laughs> did you get used to it after a while? You did. You got used to it, but you didn't like it. Um, and I, I think I probably said this on a previous podcast, uh, certain advantages to no fans there, like uh, you could leave the grounds uh, quickly and go grab a sandwich at the Spring Street Deli and be back and not even miss a race because uh, there was no traffic. Um, you know, there's just a lot of the, you know, a lot of the hassles of getting on and off track um, didn't exist because it's a ghost town and you were the only ones rattling around the place. Um, but so you got used to it because you get you get into a routine. There's 40 racing days. Um, you're going from mid July until Labor Day, and you you get used to it, but you don't like it. Um, just because it's a routine thing. and But we want the fans back. I'm sure they'll figure out a way to have fans uh, next year, uh, even if it's on some limited basis. Even though there weren't fans there, can you consider this meet this year a success? From the New York Racing Association standpoint, it was. From a racing standpoint, it was because, you know, a lot of the big stars in North America showed up and and – really showed why they're the stars of the sport right now so that happened um new york racing association took a bit of a gamble coming up here because um there was appeared to always be some potential that they would be able to have limited fans here which would have made a real big difference even if it happened like 
you know, after a couple of weeks or whatever. I talked to Naira President and CEO Dave O'Rourke on Sunday morning and, and specifically asked him, um, you know, when, when was the point of no return where even if Governor Cuomo came out and said, okay, you guys can have, fan, you know, 25% capacity of your grandstand or whatever it would have been, uh, where you guys still wouldn't have been able to do it. He said, you know, after two weeks, even if he gave us the go-ahead, we, we weren't going to do it because they needed two weeks of advance, you know, lead time just to assemble the, um, the staffing that they would have needed and to train people and, and all that stuff. So, so, you know, by two weeks in, if they didn't get the green light, it wasn't going to happen. If for anybody out there wondering, you know, I know a lot of people are speculating, well, you know, they could do this if they limited it just to the picnic tables and spaced them. And, yeah, it's easy to say that when you're not running the place. But, um, you know, once we got past the two first two weeks of the season, even if Cuomo had come out and said, yeah, you guys can have people in there, Naira would have, they wouldn't have done it. Um, just because of, just from a staffing standpoint. Now, meanwhile, um, they essentially, from a net, you know, um, accounting standpoint, they they broke even is the way he characterized it. Um, you know, I asked him, you're running you're training seven days a week at two different places, Belmont Park and Saratoga, which is expensive. Uh, meanwhile, you're getting no revenue from fans, you know, ticket sales and concessions and stuff like that to offset it. Um, but the handle was outstanding for the second year in a row. It was over $702 million the second year in a row that they hit 700 for the first time ever. Last year it was like 705 and change. And that basically drove the, you know, the accounting books and, and got them um, you know, enough on the plus side of the ledger where they could break even. And so ultimately it was worth it for them to come up here because they're Continuing the Saratoga brand and while also relying on the Saratoga brand for that gambling uh, handle that they pulled in. So um, from their standpoint, it was a success. And the other big thing, too, was they did not have a single coronavirus uh, positive on the grounds for the whole duration of the meet. So they have to feel good about all the safety procedures they put into place that um, they worked and did what they were supposed to do. Um, I mean, from being there myself every day the meet except for a couple days that I missed um you know I felt like a, a it was safe because there was nobody there but b it was safe because you know they're pretty strict about reminding people to keep masks on and and you know um you know we brought our own hand sanitizer every day just because that's kind of what you do nowadays um but uh, you know they had they rightfully they had to feel good about the fact, uh, especially because there's been been some kind of like stupid outbreaks and stuff at other tracks around the country, usually involving the jockey colony, and uh, they were that was one of the things they really clamped down on uh, was their policies in terms of who could be on the grounds. If you leave the grounds, you can't come back. Um, so they were pretty tight with the jockeys. They were tight with us as far as interviews with the jockey. I mean, at one point, I got Manny Franco to get a couple quotes about a story I was writing midway, you know, it was after, right after the Travers. And, uh, you know, I had to make special arrangements with their press office people, which they were willing to do, but it was kind of like you had to go that extra yard to get something that was pretty quick and simple. But I think that was, you know, just kind of illustrated the overall protocols and philosophy that they had that, that kept, uh, you know, kept the positive tests out of the picture. We know most of those jockeys do run at Belmont, so they were probably used to not having fans there. But 
Obviously, Saratoga is different. Did they notice the difference uh, with without the fans? Everybody did. Um, you know, we asked a variety of people, including owners and trainers afterwards, including Chad Brown after he won a stakes race. You know, it might have been right after he won the Peter Pan early in the meet with Country Grammar. Um, and he's from Mechanicville, and he's used to having his whole family there at the same picnic table every year. Um, everybody noticed it, and everybody nobody liked it and missed it and uh yeah i mean belmont park i've been down there even for jockey club gold cup day when you know the announced attendance was twelve thousand, and at belmont park it seems like 1200 and so they're they're used to it down there so but up here it's just such a big part of the experience that you couldn't help but notice uh that huge void of nobody there to to and they make noise at saratoga i mean they're real fans and it's not just you know, gamblers that, you know, are either happy or mad right after the result. I mean, they appreciate good performances and and they show up, you know, not just on the big days, but on every day. Um, and when you lose that element, it really is has a profound change in, uh, you know, how the, the, the people running the races and the horsemen and the jockeys and everybody, you know, they, they really miss it and can't wait for next year. Like, let's just get this year over with and get on to next year. Speaking of Chad Brown, he does not win the trainer's title this year. Todd Pleasure, how much of an upset is that? Um, I don't know how much of an upset it was. And this year is so strange that, like, something that in any other year would be strange, you kind of have to chalk it up. And I don't know how much the, you know, the, the COVID threw the, the stakes schedule up and, you know, kind of scrambled it up a little bit. And, um, you know, I kind of tracked uh, the margin through the whole meet, and Christophe Clement and Joel Rosario were dynamite the first half of the meet, and then gradually Chad Brown and Todd Pletcher, you know, the two monoliths uh, that have been dominating the training championship for a long time now, Chad more recently and Todd, you know, for a couple decades, um, you know, Pletcher kind of chipped away, and about halfway through the meet he took the lead, and then Chad held it, a slim lead for a for three days in a row, and then they were tied for a couple days, and then Pletcher kind of got up, and it was very close. I mean, they were tied five out of uh, seven days uh, for a stretch there toward the end of the meet, and then Pletcher kind of got ahead in the last week and then really had a surge, um, you know, on day 38 and 39, so it was pretty much over going into the final um the final racing card of the meet and one of the things he chalked it up to was the fact that he was you know you just don't know if your two-year-olds are how, how ready they're going to be and if they're going to show up and some of his like really came through he had four or five wins just off a of two-year-old you know baby races um so I, I don't know if i would call it a big upset i think the margin was more of an upset than anything else because then again if you look at the entry box over the last three days it's like todd just unloaded this battalion of what he had 15 entered in 10 races on closing they had a crazy 14 race card on closing day and he was in 10 of them and had 15 horses entered and and uh you know i asked them after you know they did a presentation for the award the championship and i said uh Notice you like really loaded up on the entry box the last few days how much of that was to make a big push at the end to win the title and how much of it was the fact that you guys have like almost a two-week break between the end of Saratoga and the start of Belmont, 
and he said oh, a little bit of both, but really toward you know. And again, he went back to the two-year-olds. Um, the schedule is so disrupted that you just don't know who's going to be ready. And his two-year-olds kind of like showed themselves to be ready a little ahead of schedule, so he was able to get a lot of them into some races. So, but man, he he loaded up. He unload. He he emptied the barn, as they say. <laughs> and of course, the Ortiz brothers uh, battle for the jockey title. Yep, I read and Jose. Um, they've. They've each won three in the last six years, and they're the ones to beat in any given meet. I read Ortiz pulled it out. Literally came, unlike the training title, the jockey championship came down to the last race, and it was weird because on that 14-race closing day, they kind of traded a couple, like I read won a couple, the book ended around one that Jose won, and then they got skunked the whole rest of the day, which was unusual, so we kept waiting for some kind of like, fireworks at the end there that never happened but still I read um, Jose needed to win the last race of the card to tie him and I, his horse came in like fourth or fifth and really wasn't in it so you're kind of poised for some fireworks and drama at the end that just never materialized but again a, just a you know a great battle between the two brothers uh, you know right down to the wire literally. Let's move on to the Kentucky Derby and the uh, stunning Victory by Authentic over Tis the Law. I mean, how surprised were you? I mean, I saw the start of the race. It looked like Tis, yeah, Tis the Law coming out of that far gate. Did that really affect them? Um, the, I, you know, we pinpoint a lot of little things to try to figure out why he why he got beat. Now, the one thing that wasn't surprising was the horse that beat him was Authentic because he's been one of the best three-year-olds in the country all season um, for a long time now. So that wasn't like a big surprise, but... You know, we had seen firsthand Tis of the Law working, breezing every sat, you know Saturday morning or whatever day of the week it would have been on the weekend in any given week, and he was just outstanding. Just had a flawless campaign, dominating in the Belmont Stakes and the Travers. You just assumed he was going to win. He was three to five, which seemed you know about right from a from an odd standpoint. Um, you know, you wonder if the schedule caught up to him because he's been a lot busier from a racing standpoint than authentic has been lately but i don't know i mean he was he he was a monster he was in shape he showed no sign of like you know being bothered by anything i mean people want to point to churchill downs the only two losses in tis the law's whole career both have come at, at churchill um he ran his race when they got to the half mile pole coming out of the turn the second turn and he got like within a head of Authentic, who had pretty much led the whole way. I was like, he's going to go right by him, and this baby's over. And he never did. And, and Authentic actually kind of re-rallied once they straightened out in the stretch. And Tizla just couldn't get by him. I mean, you got to give trainer Bob Baffert a ton of credit for having this horse ready to run a mile and a quarter. Um, he The last few works for... Uh, authentic like he had like a six furlong he, I think he had a couple six furlong works in there and which is really unusual but you can tell um, Baffert was doing that specifically um, you know to get some stamina into him which showed up in you know in his derby run um, so it's not the end of the world but it was very stunning um, you know and we, we you have so much invested in a horse like from a time and effort standpoint and just paying attention to him that and then you, you just keep waiting to see some little flaw or chink in his armor and you, it just never showed up except when the money counted on derby day when he got beat the big question now is what are they going to do next because 
Um, you know, they said all along they wanted to run in the Preakness, but trainer Barkley Tag is leaning. He's a lean against on the Preakness. He thinks horse could probably use a a break, and if they're gonna, if they want to have any kind of chance in the Breeders' Cup Classic, their best chance at it is to skip the Preakness. But the owners really want to run in the Preakness. Uh, it's really complicated question and debate because. You're also trying to win a three-year-old championship, and I firmly believe that, and I'm a voter in that, that if he runs in the Preakness and wins it and then skips the Breeders' Cup Classic, even if Authentic gets beat in the Preakness and wins the um, the Breeders' Cup Classic, which I think is a long shot considering the older horses that are going to be in there like Maximum Security and Tom's Day Tot, um, I think Tis the Law probably still pulls out the three-year-old championship. So there's incentive to run in the Preakness, but there's also some kind of red flags against running it because you know if the schedule is catching up to him then you really shouldn't be running in the preakness and um so what they're going to do is they'll they'll monitor the horse and make sure he's still on his feed bag and and still you know looking like a horse who likes his job and wants to to race um again soon they'll they'll probably they usually give him 10 days off with before they try to breeze him coming out of a race and that first breeze might be like a big indicator of whether they go in the Preakness or not. But, um, yeah, a lot of people were bummed and stunned and surprised. And, you know, there's probably some people who wouldn't be exaggerating to say they were crushed by the Law getting beat, but it's horse racing. And and um, that's why they load them in the gate. You can't just on paper, you know, assume that something's going to happen ever, especially in a big field like that, Kentucky Derby. How much does the difference with the Preakness, you know, normally between the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness two weeks, that and now, but there's a month off, does that maybe change Tag's mind uh, that maybe they should run Tizzle Uh I don't think so, just because he's run a busier schedule than the other guys have, and so they have an advantage, even if it's a wider gap on the calendar between you know the triple crown races than it usually is he's running them and some of the other ones including authentic have not and so they have a the little bit of an upper hand on tis the law in terms of like maybe being fresh going into the preakness so no i mean yeah it's it's four weeks instead of two between the derby and the preakness um, but Tis the Law has, has hit all the, the major stops, and the other ones might be running on a little fresher legs than he is going into the Preakness. So now I don't think that's really going to be a consideration. I mean, this strange year, running every four weeks, that's quick turnover um, in, in the Triple Crown. Um, and, you know, that's the cards that everybody's been dealt, and now, you know, they, they got a lot of... Well, they have one decision to make, and it's a really tough one. So, uh, we'll keep keep an eye on what they're you know kind of try to read what's coming out of the Sacatoga camp uh, in the next few weeks. As we wrap up this segment, um, what's your most memorable uh, moment from this year's Saratoga meet? Um, the Travers, and that's an easy that's an easy one to answer. I mean, Tis the Law was just so magnificent in that race, and I'll never forget. You know, you go back to the whole no crowd, no fans thing. Well, there were fans there that day. Um, and it, it was astonishing to behold because you didn't see it coming. But when when they galloped out and then when he 
kind of trotted back after the gallop out on the backstretch, you could hear fans on the outside of the fence on Nelson Avenue cheering for him. I was like, wait a minute, where's that sound? There's nobody over there. I mean, you could see the fence with their, you know, the screening that they put up to block the people's view from out, you know, out on the sidewalk on Nelson Avenue. And then I heard somebody whistling like really loud, you know, like a coach in gym class. And Manny Franco kind of gave him a little salute and, uh, I'll never forget that. That was really, really cool. And just the way Tis the Law won and, you know, really, um, you know, sparked a lot of interest in the horse. And you're kind of like, it's one of those moments where you realize you just witness greatness. And he's still a great horse, and we'll see what happens with him. But, yeah, yeah, that, I mean, that's an easy one. And, of course, the other one is the uh, Whitney when um, Tom Zay Tot failed to get out of the starting gate and was probably going to win. And, um, but he'll. I, I expect Tom Zeta to come back and be a force, and and probably the second favorite behind Maximum Security in the uh, Breeders' Cup Classic later. Whether Tis the Law is in that race or not it remains to be seen. But he he was magnificent in the Travers, and just that that cool little moment of actually hearing fans. It was the one time we heard fans in the whole in the, during the whole meet was, and we didn't see it coming. And when you heard it, it was just like just this really cool moment. Yeah. Well, Mike, appreciate you coming on uh, during the meeting once again, and uh, fantastic job. We also uh, give a shout-out to uh, our photographer, Erica Miller, for the great uh, pictures she uh, provided to us throughout the meet. Uh, you know, it's, it's, and she's there basically all day, as like you are, and uh, it's, uh, you know, so, you know, she, the work she did was outstanding. Yeah, she's outstanding and, and really makes your job easier because – a, she's good at it, and but B, she really is enthusiastic about being at the track, which is not the easiest place to shoot as a photographer, including um, the day of the Forego when Win 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 won, and we got just absolutely blasted with a thunderstorm, and she's out there with all the other ones in their their hooded raincoats and boots and stuff out in the mud, and and uh, but she loves it, and, and it shows in her work and her enthusiasm for it. And, and being out there at 5.30 in the morning for Tis the Law's workout in the dark when you can't, you know, from a photographer's standpoint, you're kind of handicapped by the fact that uh, there's no light. Um, so, yeah, shout out to Erica for sure. She was awesome and made my life and, and job easier. <laughs> of course, it makes my job easier putting the pictures in the paper as well. I guess the next time we'll talk is uh, Union Hockey, whenever that is. Yeah, well, I'll have to get on the horn with Rick Bennett sometime soon and just get an update and see where they stand with that. But, you know, normally this time of year we, we'd be cranking up for, for Union Hockey. You know, they, they typically open the second weekend in October, and that's coming up on us pretty quick. So we'll have to check in with Rick and see what the deal is. Mike, appreciate it once again. Thank you for very much. Ken. Thanks for having me. That's Mike McAdam. Coming up, we remember Mets legend Tom Seaver. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. Hey, NASCAR fans. It's time to rev up the engines and play the Daily Gazette's Auto Racing Contest. Each week during the 36-week racing season, you pick 10 drivers. If you have the week's best point total, you'll receive a $50 Hannaford gift card. If you have the best point total for the season, you'll win a $250 Hannaford gift card. Be part of the fun. Go to dailygazette.com slash autoracing. Get your motor running and play today. What's going on, everybody? My name is Freddie Coleman, host of ESPN Radio's Freddie and Fitzsimmons. And you're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. Last Wednesday, 
We learned that New York Mets legend and baseball Hall of Famer Tom Seaver died at the age of 75. He had been battling dementia. For a generation of Mets fans, Seaver was the franchise. He helped the Mets win the World Series in 1969 and the National League pennant in 1973. Mets fans were distraught when he was traded to the Cincinnati Reds in June 1977. I got some reaction to Seaver's death from three of the biggest Mets fans I know. Former Gazette Executive Sports Editor Mark McGuire, Gazette Editorial Page Editor Mark Mahoney, and Gazette Sports Writer Jim Schultz. Let's begin with Mark McGuire. I think most baseball fans know the numbers of Tom Seaver. They know about the 311 wins. They know about the 3,604 strikeouts, three Cy Youngs, uh, the, the three times uh, Cy Youngs, the 67, 61 career uh, strikeouts. They know about uh, his role in the Miracle Mets. Uh, I think not everyone knew about the connection and the role Tom Seaver had to New York Mets fans. The 69 Mets were a little too young for me. I, I, I really came of age with the You Gotta Believe Mets. And, and he represented something to Mets fans of all ages. For fans a little older, he represented the Miracle Mets. For me, he was my first sports hero. Um, he was my first icon. Um, for younger Mets fans, he was this this generational figure, this 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 uh, person from lore. Um, the way I would have when I was a kid and I may, would see maybe a Yankee old-timers day, I would see a Joe DiMaggio come on the field. He was mythical. Um, He's also uh, someone who never, um, you know, never embarrassed the franchise uh, fan base that had been embarrassed time and time again over the years. Um, you know, it, the Mets were always the little brothers to the Yankees. Um, you know, the Yankees went on to win title after title after title, and the Mets more often than not came up short. Well, we were never embarrassed to root for Tom Seaver. He was always a source of pride. So it was really um, surprising to me, but it shouldn't have been, how emotional it was uh, at Tom Seaver's passing. Yes, we knew he had dementia, 75 years old. Um, time was growing short, but still, um, it really was. Um, it was a gut punch um, because his his passing not only represent a passage of youth for all of us, but um, he represented something that was the best of our fandom. And, and frankly, he's the reason many of us became New York Met fans. And being a New York Met fan, being a fan of any sports team is a major part of uh, a fan's identity as a person. Uh, for better or worse, I'm a Mets fan, and, and in large part, it defines who I am. How devastating was the trade, the Midnight Massacre in 1977? I still, still, to this day, hate M. Donald Grant and Dick Young for provoking it. Uh, picture yourself as a kid and not truly understanding the business side of sports and finding out your, your sports hero is, is what? How? How could they? How could they trade one of the best pitchers in baseball? It made no sense to me um, that they would trade 
you know, my hero, the guy whose poster hung up on my bedroom wall um, most of my childhood. Um, it was really one of the more, um, to this day, one of the more devastating uh, sports moments of my life. I was at the fake spike game uh, when Dan Marino beat the Jets. I was at the game where Carlos Beltran looked at strike three uh, in the NLCS. That was not even close to Tom Seaver getting traded. I mean, just asking the question brings up that childhood hurt. Um, and there, there is nothing that could possibly dis- to describe that. I feel like I feel like years of youth were stolen from me, and just seeing Tom Seaver in a Reds uniform um, and later in a White Sox uniform and, and oh, geez, in a Red Sox uniform in a World Series in 1986, it's just, just wrong. What about 1983? He comes back to the Mets, and then at the end of the year, he's not protected, and he gets claimed by the White Sox. Did that one upset you as well? It it upset me as as well, but it was that that was just ineptitude, and and more more than anything, I felt sorry for for Tom at that point. And I'm also looking at it through a different lens now. Now I'm not looking at it through the lens of childhood. I'm I'm looking at it through more of a lens of of a young adult. And I also realized at that point, the Mets were starting to get good. You could see the seeds. They were starting to build something. Um, They had gotten Hernandez. They had not yet um, gotten Carter, but they had a a really strong farm system. Um, And you could see that things were on upswing. They had already had Mookie Wilson in play. And you could see the franchise was getting good. And it was it was almost to the point, like, you know, it would be great if, if Tom could be there when the Mets would get good again. Because you, the 1984 season, uh, the Mets turned the corner. They were a good, very good team and, and uh, really battled the Chicago White Sox for the division title that year. That was the, the Ryan Sandberg team. You mean Cubs. Uh, the Cubs. I'm um, <laughs> sorry, the Cubs. Um, the Ryan Sandberg team. And then, you know, obviously 85 with the Cardinals was one of the great pennant races ever. Um, before 86, they steamrolled everybody. Um, so, you know, it would have been great for Seaver to have been around. It, that was not as crushing. Actually, I, I felt more sadness for Seaver than I did for fans at that point because it would have been great to have him still around. To see him win his 300th game as a White Sox, but to do it in New York, what were the feelings like? It was that was at that point it was great just to see him win 300. That was just great. I mean, the fact that he just did it in any uniform, the fact that he did it in New York was fantastic. You know, you never stopped rooting for Tom Seaver. You didn't. Was it wrong to be in a, in a Reds uniform when he pitched no hitter, especially since it was never a no hitter pitched for the New York Mets up to that point? Um, did it hurt? No, because it was Tom Seaver. You still rooted for him. Um, he was he was the guy you, you rooted for him, um, regardless what uniform he wore. Um, you know, would I have rooted for him if he wore a Yankee uniform? 
Uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess I would. Because um, he was Tom Seaver. Uh, it was... Um, it was it was special that he went at three hundred because it really put that stamp of greatness on him. Would he have had a stamp of greatness on him, regardless, given all his numbers? Yeah, uh, because it, you just had to look. You just had to look at him. Mean, he 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 passed the eye test, but the numbers that he put up, um, you know, removed all doubt. But if you just if you just saw him pitch, um. You know, it, it was indelible um, how he dominated hitters um, and, and just the style that he pitched with, with the, the leg drive and the dirty knee and, and the way he would just absolutely dust hitters. He, he would be dominant in any era. I'm, I'm absolutely confident he'd be dominant today. Mark, appreciate a few minutes with your thoughts. Uh, Ken, it's always great catching up with you. I wish we'd be talking under uh, better circumstances. Maybe we'll... Uh, Maybe next time we could talk about the joy that is uh, September Stanley Cup hockey. No, my joy, my joy's done. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully, mine can last two more rounds. There you go. There you go. Thanks. All right. You take care. Thank you. Now it's Mark Mahoney's turn. Well, as a longtime Met fan, I'm uh, I'm really saddened by the death of Tom Seaver. Uh, he represented an era. In, in Mets baseball, and actually, I think uh, he, he kind of brought them into into prominence and and uh, respectability at a time when uh, they were really one of the uh, most disrespected teams uh, in the league up to that point, uh, having set the record that still stands for the number of losses in a baseball season. Tom Turfitt came around in 1967 and uh, and uh, immediately made an impact on the game, and uh, and uh, that lasted for, you know, about 20 years or so. Um, as a young Met fan, I, I was very young when the Mets won the World Series and when the miracle of 1969. I was about six, um, so I don't really remember it, but I do remember going to the ballpark as a kid. We used to, um, I grew up in uh, Dutchess County down south of here, and um, we used to get free tickets to the Met games um, by clipping coupons off the side of Fitchett Brothers dairy milk cartons. So, um, so we got these, yeah. So we got these seats, and we were we were always sitting in the back, like in the right field bleachers of Shea Stadium, and um, we got to see some of the great uh, Mets players of the time. Um, we used to actually chat with Rusty Staub when he was uh, playing right field because uh, he was right there with us. Um, but we got to see uh, Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman and uh, Don Matlack and and those players, and uh, even at a very young age, I remember. Uh, I remember being at the game and, and the excitement um, that, it, that it brought. And, um, you know, for, for a young kid, even somebody who was six, seven years old at the time or, you know, a little bit older, Tom Seaver was pitching. Like if you, uh, you know, when you heard the name Tom Seaver, that was the image of a pitcher. And um, even if, uh, you know, you, you didn't know much about baseball or anything like that, you knew who Tom Seaver was just because of uh, his phenomenal pitching, of course, but also his phenomenal presence and, and the elegance he brought to the game and, and the class and integrity that he brought to it, um, not just to himself and, and to the Mets, but to, to uh, you know, the entire baseball um I was um, actually as a, as a young kid. I was a, a fan of the, the Big Red Machine back then. More, um, even though I was growing up in New York, I was a Johnny Bench fan, and I, I wanted to grow up and be a catcher, and I wanted to be Johnny Bench. So um, I think I converted 
to becoming a Mets fan. First of all, my friend who used to go to the games with us said, well, if you're going to come to the games, you have to be a Mets fan. I said, well, I'm a Reds fan. Said, well, you have to be a Mets fan. So he kind of talked me into being a Mets fan. Um, but it was also the uh, the 73 um, uh, championship series with the Reds where, uh, where the, the Mets um, – advanced to the world series 73 right yeah, I think that yeah, was the year. yeah. and um where uh, you know pete rose got into the fight with buddy harrelson and uh that kind of incident and then when the, the mets went on to play the a's and uh sadly lost that series but um but i i, I kind of converted from from the big red machine to uh to the amazing mets then uh, full time and I, i've been a mets fan ever since and and again you just can't say tom Seaver without thinking mets and and just you know, excellence in baseball. So his death really represents uh, the end of an era and a really sad time for, for anyone who, who follows baseball and who considers themselves a big fan. So what was your reaction uh, the night of uh, in 1977 in June when the Mets traded Seaver to your Reds? Oh my God! It was it was all over the New York papers at then. There was some kind of contract dispute. Um, Seaver, I guess, wanted more money. Felt like he was being disrespected, especially you know compared to you know what Nolan Ryan was making when he was pitching. I think for the Angels and you know the former Met also who uh, you know also became a legend. Um, of course, we were tremendously disappointed. How do you let an icon like that you know get away? Um, you, you just it's just. Uh, it's devastating and he was still in his prime obviously because um you know he finished the the season with uh, over 20 wins and and then got his uh, only no hitter uh with the reds instead of with the mets where where he should have had it so um yeah it was terribly disappointing and um I think that was the time where everybody kind of started focusing on ownership and, and how they could screw things up. And um, the Mets ownership has been screwed up ever since, I think. Um, and uh, maybe that's maybe it's the curse of Tom Seaver, curse of Tom Terrific, uh, that uh, we've only got uh, one, one of the World Series since then. Um, so, yeah, it's tremendously disappointing for any New York uh, fan to, to lose somebody like that and uh you know especially over something ridiculous like you know money um they, they should have done everything they could to keep him in the stable and, and have him uh, retire as a met finally jim schultz okay uh tom Seaver. obviously growing up he was my favorite he was i'm a met fan i've been a met fan since i was thinking about this you know uh I wasn't on the wagon in 1969 because I was only seven years old. I jumped on the Met wagon. Really, it was like 73. And uh, <clears throat> you learn more about the team. And Tom Seaver was the man because growing up, the Mets didn't have a lot of stars. If you think about it, uh, he was our Cy Young winner. He was our Rookie of the Year. You know, he was our everything. And for the longest time, the Mets didn't have uh, anybody to hang their hat on. He he was the guy. And uh he was fantastic. I remember, uh, Ken, you're the one who told us that evening he passed away. Not a complete surprise, but very sad. I was, I was sad, you know? And uh, you, we, you knew it was, gonna, it was coming. He's been uh, uh, in poor health the last couple of years. Uh, not a surprise. Very sad. I, I was definitely, I needed a few minutes there. But um, I have a great memory of him. Uh, I tweeted it out, and I had to look it up, actually, but I'll never forget, um, my brother Steve and I went to a Met game. It was 1976, so it was my birthday. I was 14 years old. We didn't know he was pitching, and uh, for my birthday, you know, my present was to go to Shea Stadium and uh, 
Tom Seaver pitches against uh, uh, Tommy Tommy John. Yeah, I had to try to remember. This is a long time ago, and uh, the it's a little blurry. You know what exactly happened? Mets lost two to one. I know Reggie Smith had a home run for the Dodgers, and uh, but that's a, the memory that me and my brother went to this game will stick with me forever. It's the only time I ever saw Tom Seaver. I don't remember if he got the decision, if he won or lost. It doesn't matter. I always can say I went and saw Tom Seaver pitch in a game, and uh, it's one of my greatest memories uh, as a Met fan because I can say that, that I did that. Um, fantastic. Again, he was just one of my favorites growing up. Like, uh, had the poster on the wall. Great Met. A year later, the trade, the Midnight Massacre. How did that affect you? You know... As a kid, still a kid, devastated. Like, how can they do this? You bounce back eventually. You know, okay, you, you learn these things happen in sports, but when you're younger, not good, you know? And again, I was a Kingman fan, too, so they get rid of him and, you know, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, Dave, <laughs> sure. But, uh, yeah, no, it was tough. It was tough. What was really difficult, okay, then he gets his no-hitter. You know, you, Mets hadn't had one. They still only have the one. He gets the no-hitter. He wins his 300th game. You know, he eventually comes back, which was great. But all those things you wanted to see him do and believe he could have done as a Met, uh, that's something I wish had happened. So it, was, it, it hurt when he got traded. Uh, you get older, you, you, you deal with trades better because that's part of the game. But uh, being a youngster, that, that, that was not a good day for, for me. I'll say that. But uh, as a Met, greatest Met ever. You can't, can't deny that. Next, we'll preview the NFL season. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. Hey, football fans. The Daily Gazette You Pick'em Football Contest is back. Predict the winners of the weekly games via your You Pick'em online account. The fan with the most correct points each week gets their name in Thursday's Daily Gazette and wins a $100 ShopRite grocery gift card. The fan with the most overall points after 23 weeks wins a $1,000 travel voucher and could win a trip to Hawaii. To play, go to dailygazette.com football and create your account or use your past account. Select the teams you think will win. You may enter your picks and score predictions five minutes before the start of each game. For official rules, go to dailygazette.com football. For questions concerning the local contest, contact Randy Lewis at rlewis at dailygazette.net. The trip to Hawaii is part of a national contest. The You Pick'em Football Contest is run by the Daily Gazette Advertising Department and not associated with the Daily Gazette Sports Department. Hi, this is Byron Hunter, the world champion New York Giants. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. The 2020 NFL season kicks off Thursday night as the Super Bowl 54 champion Kansas City Chiefs host the Houston Texans. It's going to be a most unusual season. Thanks to the coronavirus pandemic, there will be little to no fans in the stands. There could be a changing of the guard in the AFC East, and we have a new Monday night football team. I participated in two Zoom calls this week. I'll start with Tuesday's event with CBS Sports. I had a chance to ask Jim Nance about the two sides of New England Patriots head coach Bill Belichick, and I spoke with Tony Romo about the East Division in both conferences. 
Uh, a couple of questions. First for Tony, can you break down the East divisions in both uh, conferences? Obviously, the NFC has three new coaches. The AFC, we don't know Tom Brady this year, which could open things up for the other teams in the division. And for Jim, uh, Bill Belichick, uh, we see a, a man who's very guarded when he's on the field and in press conferences. But away from football, we see him as a, a different uh, Belichick. He's more outgoing. We saw him host the NFL Network's 100, uh, Top 100 uh, this, this past season and stunningly so shows up in a Subway commercial. So uh, if you can, uh, what is it about Belichick? Why, why can't we see that kind of Belichick uh, when he's coaching? Uh, well, so I'll start with this. Uh, yeah, I think that there's a lot more to Bill Belichick than meets the eye. You watch those uh, press conferences on a daily basis. I'm actually quite amused by him. Uh, I, I enjoy watching him for entertainment value. Um, <laughs> you can't tell whether it's a poker face or if he's being real. Uh, yeah, they're off, I think, away from football. Uh, you get a chance to see who the real Bill Belichick is as a person. And by the way, he did get nominated for an Emmy Award for what he did with that um, NFL Top 100 as a studio analyst. And you've just teed me up here perfectly, Ken, to be able to say uh, about that comment that was made at the top by Sean about our entire operation, uh, our production team across the board, games one through seven. Everybody that was a part of the NFL on CBS wins the Emmy for best sports series. And obviously that could be any series, baseball, hockey, football, college football, whatever. But the last time that the NFL on CBS won that Emmy was in 1982. So... It's a great tribute to everybody that uh, has their hands on this. And just on a personal note, um, a, a shout-out to our Jim Rickoff, who, who leads our, our crew. Extremely proud of what he's been able to do. Uh, but, I look, I think Belichick, I think Bill is, um, you know, he, 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 why does he need to change the way he approaches coaching football from a personality standpoint? It works. You know, we uh, we kind of went into the offseason thinking we may not see a whole lot of Coach Bill anymore now that the Belichick-Brady uh, band is, uh, is is broken up. But uh, it's, uh, it's potentially for us, and these are not final, but uh, we are going to see the Patriots, it's pretty certain, three of the first four weeks. Things could change. Week one against Miami, week three against the Raiders, uh, week four at Kansas City. And then there's two more games in the first seven that I believe we will see. I mentioned earlier San Francisco and at New England. So we're going to be seeing a lot of Coach Belichick. I'll pass along your concerns, Ken, <laughs> about maybe he ought to bring a little bit of the subway personality to the sideline. Um, and I might just ask that just to see what kind of reaction he comes back with me. <laughs> do, you, do you think he'll? Do, do you think he'll say well, it's, it's after a loss? He'll say it's we're on the subway now. Like, like you know, if it's on the Cincinnati. You know, I, I, <laughs> I don't, I don't. I don't know. You never know what to say, but I will tell you this: we're going to, and nobody's asked this. We're not going to be able to have the face-to-face -face meetings with the teams this year. Our production meetings are going to be different than we've done, just like we're doing this right here. It's going to be all by Zoom, and there's some good things with that, and there's a lot of things that you'll lose. Uh, I've grown to really love those uh, two to three, sometimes four-hour meetings with coaches and players. Um, it was just not going to happen, at least. It's not going to happen this season. It's all going to be, uh, 
you know, so sanitized now through through Zoom. So I'm going to miss being in the room with with Coach Bill. I will tell you that uh, he's fantastic to us, and he's so much more outgoing, and there's a much bigger personality than the guy you see standing at the lectern. He loves being with Tony. He loves having uh, Tony in these production meetings and even at times kind of picking his brain and Tony recognizing something he's seen on film and they're Xing and Oing and they're drawing all over uh, the tablecloth, you know, if we're on the road and we're in a boardroom, they have the thing with a white tablecloth and somebody ought to maybe just one time just take those tablecloths and get Bill to sign it <laughs> because, man, there's some there's some interesting stuff there, some X's and O's and uh, I'm going to miss all that. Is Tony there? Uh, I'm here, but... Uh... Your question, nobody heard the first part because you were breaking up. I'm sorry. Uh, my, my question for you, Tony, is uh, the breakdown of both divisions, and uh, both East divisions and the conferences. Uh, the NFC has um, three new coaches, head coaches, and the AFC, obviously, with Tom Brady gone, it's, it looks like it could be a wide-open division. Yeah, I think this is probably the year that it's more of I mean, the Patriots dynasty is so rare that – there's a good chance you never see it again, no matter what. I mean, just, I've said it for a long time. I've said it on air, but you don't get the best coach ever with possibly the best player ever on the same team. And when they do, I mean, what if they played it? Nine Super Bowls? I mean, that's not even a real number. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's unfathomable to think. You know, Jim Nance told me this. When I first started at CBS, and he's dead right, he goes, I'm really glad you came in now because we don't know how long the Patriots dynasty is going to go. Now, he's been through all the Peyton Manning versus, you know, the Patriot games, all the Steelers. I mean, all the rivalries that came and gone, the Broncos. I mean, you have Maul, Colts, obviously, like I just said. But he said, I want you to see it when you're broadcasting. So you have a standard for everybody else going forward for the next 50 years. If you're, if we're doing this and, you know, Nance is 125 and, you know, I'm 44, then I feel like pretty close. We're actually only like five years apart, guys. But he, he actually was dead right because having seen that standard, it is different. They're that good. They're that unique. And I think... It's going to be really fun. This football season is going to be really enjoyable. I mean, we're doing New England early, and I'm excited because I know how gifted Bill Belichick is. He's rare times 10,000. And I also know how gifted Tom Brady is. He's rare times 10,000. And these two just went separate, and I'm like, this is going to be fun. From just a fan, an analyst, I'm like, are they better together? Yeah, because they're both the best at what they do, you know? It's like getting Harold Bryant together, putting him with Jim Rickoff. <laughs> I think uh, it's going to be fun. I'm excited. I'm excited to call the game on Sunday. I'm excited to see how this thing plays out because I don't know. And that that's enjoyable. So that's why football's amazing. And what about the NFC East with, like I said, with the uh, three new head coaches there? Well, I think the Giants are going to make a big leap. I think uh, people don't quite understand couple things. Number one, Jason Garrett's going to provide for that offense. He's going to make the game simpler in a good way. When you're a young quarterback, he's, he's fantastic for a young quarterback. And I think that uh, Danny 
Daniels is going to improve tremendously under the guidance of Jason Garrett. I think that Joe Judge is very good. I think he has really the stuff he talks about communicates and talk is talk. But ultimately, if you can get your football team to do it and uh, not commit dumb penalties, I mean, the teams were really, really well coached. You know, you can talk about 10 different reasons, but one of them is just don't lose the football game on things that you can control. Um, if another guy makes a great play, so be it. But let's not just beat ourselves over and over again with turnovers, dumb penalties, you know, things that really give the other team an advantage. And I think Joe Judge, um, he's going to have the ability to do that for that team. So I think they're going to make a leap. I also think the Redskins, changing systems, I think that defensive line, you're going to see them come come on very quickly. I think you're going to see them, it's a one-gap system. Everyone wants to talk about 4-3, four, 3-4. Three, three, four. That's not stuff that matters. It's a one-gap system or a two-gap system. That's what everyone should say. One-gap means we're going toward the quarterback and we'll hit the running back on the way most of the time. Two-gap means we're trying to take our guy, hold him, and move either gap. And so I think you're going to see a lot of the D linemen that have been playing the two-gap, which you know, when you have a lot of ability, sometimes there's not – one that's right or wrong, but this team has the ability to play one gap and go. You're going to see that pick up. If Dwayne Haskins is any good, they're going to be improved. The Dallas Cowboys had as much talent as anybody in the National Football League. That offense is unbelievable. Getting C.D. Lamb, I mean, it's going to be tough, especially with that offensive line still being able to protect. And then, um, you know, the Eagles. The Eagles are the interesting one because they're the hardest to predict, in my opinion. The other two are coming on. Are the Eagles dropping down or are they going up? And I think that as long as, you know, Charles talked about it earlier, but as long as this football team has a little bit of protection, I'm worried about their offensive line. And that's a huge deal in the National Football League. But that's a very good division. And I think you're going to see that division hasn't been as talented. They'll have a team who's great. Eagles go win. Cowboys are in the mix. Could be doing one any week. But the other two haven't really been up in a long time. I think that's going to be – a lot closer than it's been in the past. On Wednesday, ESPN had a Zoom call to introduce its new Monday Night Football team of Steve Levy, Brian Greasy, and Lewis Riddick. They join returning sideline reporter Lisa Salters. Levy, Greasy, and Riddick are taking over for Joe Tessitore and Booker McFarlane. The trio talked about their new role. You will hear first from Levy, followed by Riddick and Greasy. Okay, thanks, Derek, and uh, and good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for your interest and appreciate you all being here. Um, I woke up this morning, as I as I often do these days, and I, I pondered when I should deactivate my Twitter account, and uh, I thought I would wait probably until, you know, maybe Monday or Tuesday. We'll see how that goes. But um, I saw on Twitter this morning that today is the 45th anniversary of Welcome Back, Cotter. And uh, that certainly brought me back to my childhood, that I was 10 years old at that time, and I was a family favorite for us. Wanted to be John Travolta at that point, and that was around the same time uh, that I began really falling in love with with NFL football and um, started the negotiation process with my parents about staying up as late as possible uh, to watch. And those games, of course, the games started at 9 Eastern. Uh, so, you know, it was, hey, you know, a year of first quarter, and then the next year, hey, maybe can I make it to halftime? And then it was through the halftime and the great highlights and Howard Cosell and the music and so on. So uh, it's been uh, it's been quite the journey. I'm obviously ecstatic. A dream job feels so cliche now, but I, I can't come up with anything that summarizes it better uh, for me personally 
Um, people who know me know I have said for many years that I'm the most fortunate guy in the business. And I felt that when I was anchoring the 11 o'clock sports center. So you can imagine how I feel now uh, being put in the, in the Monday Night Football play-by-play chair. I feel like our upper management has uh, put us all in a position to succeed. Uh, Stephanie uh, gave you the, the names, and I can't tell you, even people I haven't worked with, I have fully vetted and uh, your only great thing. So I am excited to, to not talk about the process anymore. Um, obviously, we can do that here this morning, but I'm excited for, for kickoff. Let's kick the thing off and let's play football and let's, uh, and let's have a good time doing it. That's, that's where I'm headed. Yeah, thanks a lot. Good, good morning, everyone. Um, I think th- this, is, this has been a heck of a ride. I think Steve put it very, very, uh, very nicely right there as far as all of us are concerned. I think when you get into broadcasting, I think one of your goals is always going to be I want the biggest and the best assignments. I want the, most, the, the assignments that challenge you the most. You want the biggest stage. And you really want the pressure. You you welcome the pressure. You welcome the responsibility. Monday Night Football does all of that for all of us, whether you're in front of the camera or behind the camera. It's the most iconic brand, I believe, in all of football, whether that be college or pro, high school, whatever level you're talking about, other than the Super Bowl. It's something that I think we all have a long, varied history with. I mean, my stories going back to childhood, as Steve referenced himself, you know, start and end with sitting on my father's lap, 9 o'clock Eastern, you know, as a little kid just getting ready for school the next day and just begging him, saying, hey, look, just just give me a half. I'll make it through a half, and I'd make it through maybe two series. And I'd be asleep, and next thing you know, I'd wake up in the morning and wonder, how did I get in my bed? And that's because he used to have to take me in there every morning. But I just wanted to hear, I wanted to hear the music. I wanted to hear Frank Gifford welcome everyone in. I wanted to see Don Meredith crack some jokes. I wanted to hear Howard Cosell's voice. And back then, what I wanted to see was I wanted to watch Tony Dorsett run because that was my guy. The Dallas Cowboys were my team. And that's what that's what Monday Night Football means to me. So, you know, I played on it as a pro. I remember hearing the music at Three River Stadium when I was with the Cleveland Browns, and they played the music right before kickoff, and the refs, you know, kind of blew the whistle, and the music went off at Three River Stadium, and I remember looking across and seeing teammates in tears running down their face because that's what Monday Night Football is. That's how big it is. Um, I'm very grateful to to have the opportunity to be a part of this tremendous team and be set up with guys who have proven themselves as live broadcasters and proven themselves as professionals, Steve and Brian. And I think I'm ready to play some play some football and talk about some football too. This has been great. It's been fun talking about it as far as all of our journeys are concerned. But I can't wait till next next Monday night because it's a great matchup, the matchup that we have, Tennessee at Denver. I can't wait to get started. Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, I uh, I'll echo what what Steve and Lewis uh, said. I um, I think that um, uh, the feeling that I have. Uh, this morning is is one of uh, being grateful uh, and fortunate uh, with everything that's going on in our world today. That um, that is game week, and that we're going to have NFL football, um, and that this crew is going to have an opportunity to cover it. And um, I'm I'm excited uh, about the opportunities. Um, I think that uh, for me, Monday Night Football uh, is not so much a destination as it is a beginning, and. Um, 
I'm, I'm excited about the journey ahead. Um, understand that um, uh, nothing has been uh, done uh, to uh, solidify anything other than the fact that we have an opportunity to go out and, and do what we love to do. And uh, I love covering football. Uh, I love uh, interacting with the fan at home uh, and creating that relationship with the fan at home and serving the fan. Um, I can't uh, tell you how excited I am to work with uh, Phil Dean and Jimmy Platt, who um, have been phenomenal um, in their careers. Uh, and I look forward to learning from them uh, and exploring how we can do things differently. Uh, we have a wonderful crew um, throughout Monday Night Football. Um, we are just, you know, four individuals um, on this crew, but uh, Monday Night Football um, is about so many more people and about the team of people that, that work on bringing this game every single week. And um, we've met a few. Um, I look forward to meeting all of them. Um, from our camera guys to our tape guys to uh, everybody that works in PR and Derek and Ali. And, um, there's a lot of work that goes in, a lot of pride that goes into putting this game on each and every week. And um, as I've told, you know, Lewis and Steve, um, you know, it's about the team. And, um, and while the, the three, four of us um, are more forward facing uh, on air and off air, um, it's important that the entire team understands everybody's role in making this thing happen and happen in a way that's that's done as well as we possibly can. Um, so I'm excited about that. I've been a part of teams my entire life. Uh, and now to be a part of the Monday Night Football team is, is the next great opportunity. And I can't wait to get started. Um, hi, and good morning, everybody. Um... Well, look, I, I think my, my expectation is that we will, Andrew, quite honestly, just be us. We will be our normal professional selves. I think we will, without a doubt, play off of each other very well, given our experiences, given Steve's experience as a play-by-play -play guy and someone who's been on TV for many years and has the best you know, knowledge base from which to draw from. Brian and Steve, who have worked together, and Brian's you know, experience as a player and as a broadcaster is well documented. And he's one of the very best that there is. And, you know, for myself, I think I'll, I'll just be myself and we'll all just, be, you know, play off of one another. I think we will sound like a group that has good chemistry. We'll work to continue to always develop that chemistry even further. We'll draw off of our vast knowledge base. And, and you'll, you, I think we'll, we'll sound like a crew that really enjoys the game, no matter if it was being played in a parking lot or being played in a huge stadium, whether it was Pop Warner or if it was professional football. I think you will, you, will, you will hear us come off as a group that is just very much invested in the game and trying to, as Brian put it eloquently, serve the fan while at the same time just kind of losing ourselves in the game and enjoying the process because – one thing that you realize, you know, why I think in, in football, whether you're playing it or you're talking about it, once the game is over, it's just how quickly it goes by and how quickly your career goes by, how quickly seasons go by, how quickly it all goes by. And I think we'll, you'll, you'll, you'll hear us sounding like, like a crew that is just really invested and in love with the game. And I think that'll come across organically, and hopefully it's something that people like to hear. Brian? Yeah, I, uh, I agree. I think um, 
you know, the opportunity for us to do the, the second Monday night game last year uh, was really beneficial. Um, first time that, that the three of us had worked together. Um, and I felt like pretty quickly um, the communication in-game uh, was good. Um, obviously, having three people in a booth versus two people in a booth is different. It's different structurally. Uh, the amount of time that you have to talk and, and how you organize that um, is something that you have to work through. And um, I felt like uh, the communication was great uh, for the first time ever working together. Um, and I think we're going to pick up there where we left off and continue to grow. It's going to be a work in progress, but I think um, as time goes on, uh, we'll develop our, our rhythm. And ultimately, I don't view our role as showing up every week and trying to show uh, people how much football we know. Uh, that's not the point. The point is that people enjoy watching the show, uh, that they're engaged in the show, uh, they're engaged relationally. Like What I mean by that is they want to spend three hours with us. Um, that we're going to have a good time, we're going to have fun, uh, that they're going to be engaged uh, mentally. Uh, they will learn something new watching the show. Uh, and at the very minimum, they will know why the game was won or lost, whether that's a decision by a player or a coach or et cetera. Um, and, and they will be engaged emotionally because that's always what's the most interesting thing to me when we watch a football game. It's the emotion of the players, of the coaches. And I think that this year in particular, um, will be even more emotion than we've ever seen before. Um, so if we do those three things, um, I think we'll be fine. Stephanie Drooley, ESPN's Executive Vice President of Event and Studio Production, was asked what she learned from the experience with Tessator, McFarland, and Jason Witten, who was only there for the 2018 season. Well, uh, I learned, well, first of all, everyone's a critic, right? Um, well, I, I do want to say, look, Booger and Joe continue to be extremely um, valuable to our company. You know, we just announced this morning that Booger's joining um, Chris Berman on NFL Primetime um, and also will have a role in Monday Night Countdown. And um, Joe, you know, has a high-profile um, college football game, which we, we anticipate um, will will certainly grow. Um, but, look, I think we – it, it's clear that we have here a team. As I said, it's a veteran team. They have, they've not, they're not veteran together, but they're veteran, right? They are. Um, Brian and Steve bring a chemistry that they've had for five years, um, and you know, people can question, well, what? If, why a three-man? Um, you know, we we heard them together last year. I will also say that Brian and Steve have worked alongside Todd McShay for many years on college. And even though Todd was not in the booth, they integrated him in a way that was seamless. And so he felt like a third analyst. So they are, they are used to working with a third person. Um, and, you know, add to that sort of Lewis's experience and what we've seen to loop from Lewis. It, it, it just made sense. Um, so, look, I, we have high expectations here, and um, and and I, I anticipate these guys are going to gel really, really quickly.
Hi, this is Union Men's Hockey Coach Rick Bennett. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Back to wrap up the podcast. Check out my Parting Shots blog for my week one NFL picks and TV listings. Go to dailygazette.com slash category slash sports slash parting dash shots. And I will once again be going head to head with Daily Gazette news columnist Sarah Foss. Sarah has defeated me the last two seasons. I hope she doesn't make it three straight. Keep checking out dailygazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on the coronavirus pandemic. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this pandemic. We appreciate the job you're doing in this difficult time. Now that the state is reopened, that does not mean you should relax. Keep wearing the face mask while you're out. Be considerate. Be safe. That wraps up another edition of the Party Shots podcast. I'd like to thank Mike McAdam, Mark McGuire, Mark Mahoney, Jim Schultz, Jim Nance, Tony Romo, Steve Levy, Brian Greasy, Louis Riddick, and Stephanie Drooley for being on the show. The Party Shots podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and SoundCloud. Subscribe today. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Party Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Party Shots podcast is a production of Gazette newspapers. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Party Shots podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports, be smart, stay safe.